So what do you do when you're standing in front of a, a closed door? There's a few things you could do. You could do nothing. You just kind of stand there and look at it. That's something you could do. You could, you could try to open the door and, and walk through and do that. If there's a, a doorbell, you could ring the doorbell and, and maybe somebody will come. You could do what, what many people do when they're faced with a situation that they're not really sure what to do. They just pull out their smartphones and start playing Candy Crush. You know? I mean, you can do that. And especially if you're in a restaurant, be sure to turn the volume up all the way on your phone so that everybody in the restaurant can hear you playing Candy Crush. Yes, I experienced that this week. That's one of the reasons I added it. Yeah. Or you could do what we have trained kids to do for about the last 90 years, and that's just use two words. Knock, knock. Yeah. We're going to do this, all right? Just, we're going to do it. So you may already know this, that's all right, we're, we're just, we're going to do it. So, knock, knock. Cow says. <laughs> oh no, cow says moo. Knock, knock. A little old lady. Hey, I didn't know y'all could yodel. Good job, that's fantastic. It's good. good. All right, one more. Knock, knock. Candace. Can this joke get any worse? <laughs> Feel free to use those among your friends this week. Fantastic. According to Linton Weeks of National Public Radio, it seems the first knock-knock jokes as we know them started around the 1920s, but the precursor was before the 1900s and the late 1800s, and they were in the form of do-you-know jokes, all right? The do-you-know jokes would go like this. Do you know Arthur? Arthur who? Arthur-mometer. Bless their ancient humor, right? I mean, but I, I mean, yeah, it was funny then. So, I mean, I guess that's good. How about it? You know, knock-knock jokes will not magically open a closed door. You know, we can't just tell a knock-knock joke and all of a sudden we have entrance to where we are. Someone said when it comes to a closed door, we can always do this. When life closes a door, just open it again. It's a door. That's how they work. There's some truth to that. But what if you can't just open the door again? What if you can't break the door down? What if you can't punch in a secret code and get in the door? What if you can't bribe the doorman to get inside? What if it's a completely different scenario? And what if it's not just any door, but it is the most important door in your life? It's the door that helps you discover why you exist, why you're here, and your purpose on this earth. The door that helps you discover what it means to be alive, and the door that defines what it means to die. That sounds like a, a pretty important door. So what kind of door are we talking about? Well, let's find out. Ephesians chapter 2 Beginning with verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes this, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Imagine if you came to church this morning, you were not allowed to come into this main room here. Imagine when you came in, whatever door you came in, there were people there and, and they had a checklist. And if you weren't wearing the right clothes or 
or your skin color wasn't the right color, or you didn't have the right parents, or you didn't have the right background, or you didn't grow up in this community, you would not be allowed to come into the main room. You'd, you'd have to stay out in the hallway or stay in the foyer in the front of the church. In, in kind of a sort of a way, that's, that's kind of what church looked like in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul. It was a little different from what we are used to. If you were not Jewish, you were allowed to come to church if you were a follower of God, but you had your own courtyard and, and you could not go beyond that. If you were a woman, you could come to church, but you had your own place and, and you could not go beyond that. If you were a man, you could come to church, but you had your place and you could not go beyond that. The priests were a little different. The, the priests could go a little deeper into the church, but, but they could not go and, and sit down on a pew and drink some coffee and hang out. No, there was nowhere for them to sit. If they got deeper in, it's because they were going to serve. They were going to work. They were going to worship. And once a year, the high priest, he could go into the holiest place of the church and make sacrifices for the sins of the people. Now, that sounds a bit strange to us. In fact, we might even say, man, that sure sounds kind of unchristian. But the reality is that system was established by God. Why? Well, on Sesame Street, they used to sing, one of these things is not like the others. And, and that's the picture that we have here. The picture is, is one of separation. See, the reality is it is only by seeing and hearing and discovering separation that you will realize that you are separated. It's only by seeing and hearing and discovering exclusion that you will realize that you are excluded. It's only by seeing and hearing and discovering that there are promises that are strange to you that lets you know and realize that you are a stranger. So the question is, when it comes to the things of God, are you separated today? Are you excluded? Are you a stranger to the promises of Jesus Christ? The Jewish people, they were saved and rescued for a purpose. You know, we tend to kind of shy away from the words separated and exclusion. They're not exactly politically correct today. But the reality is through those words are the only way that we can actually find the ultimate definition of hope. See, the Jews, they were, they were saved and set apart, separated, so that they might be a light to the world so that people might be able to find God through them. They were not like the others on purpose. But sadly, they took their separation, their exclusion, their salvation, and they began to worship those things more than they worshiped God. And when they quit worshiping God, they quit becoming a light to the world. Or they did the opposite. They just blew off that they had been separated, that they ignored that they had been separated and saved, and, and they just started functioning like everybody else in the world around them. Pastor and author Warren Wearsby once said this, religious history is not a record of man starting with many gods and gradually discovering the one true God. Rather, don't miss, this is a huge point, history is the sad story of man knowing the truth about God and deliberately turning away from it. He goes on. Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles that they too might be saved. But sad to say, Israel became like the Gentiles and the light burned but dimly. 
And then he gives this challenge. This fact is a warning to the church today. When the church is least like the world, it does the most for the world. Christians, we have not been separated in salvation to be arrogantly exclusive in sin toward those who do not know God. Likewise, we have not been separated through salvation to be arrogantly excessive in our sin and engaged in the ways of the world. No, we have been separated in salvation so that we would be always exalting the one who made it possible that we are no longer separated, we are no longer excluded, we are no longer a stranger. To worship the one who has fashioned us to be a light to those who do not know God. And why should we be that way? Why should we be always exalting that way? Here's why. Because we never forget what it means to be separated. This is what Paul said, verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. No hope, no help, no happiness, no blessing, no light, no rest, no peace, no safety, no salvation, absolutely no hope. To have no hope means that there's nothing to look forward to. To have no hope means there's nothing that's going to improve. It's not going to get better. And, and that's what it means to be without God. It means to have no hope. And so I, I would ask, are you without hope today? Are you separated from God? Are you excluded from God? Are you without God today? A German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, said this about hope. Hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. Hope, he said, is the worst of all evils because it, it just promotes and prolongs the torments of man. His, his math is way off. It's not hope that's the worst evil. It's sin that's the worst evil. Why? Because sin separates us from God. Sin by its very nature, ultimately and eternally, and in a sense, temporarily, separates us from all that is good and holy and just and perfect and beautiful. Namely, it separates us from God and His truth. Sin, by its very nature, creates an impossible situation where we are separated from God where we have nothing to look forward to and therefore we have no hope. No hope without God. But here's the beauty. Nietzsche's math is wrong. It's, it's off. And there, there's a second part to the story. Listen to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. This is the only ultimate, final, beautiful, satisfying, heart-releasing, mind-healing contrast to evil, horror, 
and terror in this world. To be near God. To be near God is the ultimate answer for all evil. To be near. To be near help. To be near happiness. To be near blessing. To be near light and peace and joy and rest. To be near safety. To be near salvation. To be near hope. All of that happens from being in Christ. All of those beautiful, glorious realities, they all happen from being in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, to be in Christ means you're no longer in the courtyard. It means you're no longer separated. You're no longer excluded. You're no longer a stranger. You are no longer without hope. To be in Christ means that you are now rescued. You are now redeemed. You are now surrendered. You are now yielded. You are now forgiven. You are now included. You are now near. You're now near to God. So are those things true in your life? Are you near to God? Have you been rescued and redeemed as Has Christ brought you near? Are you in Christ? And how could something like that even happen? Listen to what Paul says next. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Someone might ask, blood? Why blood? I don't want some bloody, gory religion. I want something happy, uplifting, and fun. I want a religion that's relevant for my life. I want a religion that matches up with my conservative ideas. I want a religion that matches up with my moderate ideas. I want a religion that that matches up with my liberal ideas. I want a a religion that, that wraps up and matches up with my social concern and my political ideologies. I, I want a religion that has traditional music. I want a religion that has contemporary music. I want a religion with suits and ties. I want a religion with skinny jeans. I want a religion with good programs for my kids. I want a religion that helps me feel good about myself. Let me tell you this. You can have whatever religion you want. There's a hundred million churches in South Carolina. Yeah, my math's a little off there, but, but you can find somewhere. You go find the religion you want. You can find the religion you want. Matter of fact, you can go with no religion. You can find no religion. You can find whatever religion you want. But here's the thing you will not be able to do. None of us can escape dealing with the blood. There's no way around it. You see, when there is a, a loss of blood, life is lost. Too much blood loss means a life is lost. Blood is central to life. We have three blood drives every year here at Holland Avenue. You know why? Because donating blood saves lives. I believe the statistics on our last blood drive a few weeks ago was that our blood drive potentially saved the lives of over like 103 people, I think was, was their statistic. So blood, it saves lives. So, so put together whatever religion you want to, but you will not be able to run away from the blood. Billy Graham, when he was a young preacher, was speaking somewhere 
And a professor from Cornell University came and said this to him, son, you're a good speaker. You speak with authority and clarity. You can go places in the ministry, but I want to suggest you leave out that blood stuff. Don't speak about the blood. It's uncultured, uncouth, and you'll go far if you'll leave out the message of the blood. Billy Graham said his mental response to that was this, I purposed in my heart then to preach on the blood of Jesus more than ever. Why? Well, this is how the Bible says it, Hebrews 9.22. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why? Because money and fame and political parties and hobbies and vacations and anything else you want to put in that list cannot save your soul. And your family and your best friends and even kind strangers, their blood cannot save your soul. Why? Because it's the wrong type. See, the the only type of blood that can make things right with God, the only type of blood that can make everything the way it has to be, the only type of blood that can conquer sin is a blood that is pure and spotless and perfect. And the only person that has blood like that is Jesus. No one else. So Jesus becomes the only way through his blood for you to be right with God. Jesus becomes the only way to get through the door that matters the most. There is a hope that comes through the blood of Christ that is not temporary, although it is for today. In our worst moment on this planet, it is the blood of Christ that gives us the hope of our salvation. But it's also not just for today. It is everlasting. An elderly man was standing in a museum gallery one day. and He was in the, the art section and he was looking at all of these beautiful paintings. And he came to one painting that depicted the crucifixion of Jesus. And he sat staring at this painting and it, it just overwhelmed him. It was so Realistic. It, it captivated him. And in a very short amount of time, he, he just started weeping. And he, he looked up at the painting. He, he whispered aloud, oh, bless him. I love him. I love him. And there were other people there in the gallery, and, and they could hear him making kind of some loud whispering noises. And they could see that he was weeping. And one man, he walked over and he, he stood next to the man. He looked up and he saw the painting. And he too became overwhelmed. And he, he shook the old man's hand. And he said, I, I love him too. 
And another man came over and he stopped and, and he looked up at the painting. And the exact same thing happened. He became overwhelmed. And he too, with these men, they looked at the painting and they, they spoke of their love for Jesus. Three men from different backgrounds, from different churches, from, from different ways of life, standing in front of a painting, an image of Christ, an image of his sacrifice, and all they could experience was joy together over the love of Jesus. In that moment, because of the blood that had rescued, redeemed, saved them, the blood that had made things right between them and God. In that moment, the three of them sat in a gallery weeping and praising Jesus because they had been brought near. They had been brought near.